Last week we began a study in Second Peter, and I said the purpose of that letter was to deal with the false prophets in the church who were preaching false doctrine. Now, within the church at that time, one of the primary heresies was antinomianism. Barbara Porter asked me, what does that mean? It means against the law. And uh, they, were, they were teaching that as a believer, we were not, or they were not under the law because they were under grace. Therefore, it was not necessary for them to be concerned about the law. And if they sinned, that was perfectly all right because the more sin there was, the more grace there was. Another heresy at that time, interestingly, is the exact opposite of that, which was legalism. And there was another group that said that one is made right with God by legally keeping the law. So if I do certain things or if I do not do certain things, that makes me right with God. So we had the liberals on one side, we had the legalists on the other side, and both of them were wrong. But that was a false doctrine that Peter was dealing with. We have always had the problem of false prophets and false doctrines in the church, and certainly we do in our age. I could mention many to you, but I suppose the most popular one would have to be Oprah's online church. Now, I don't know if it's a church or not. I don't know the nomenclature, but I know that she has an audience of about four to five million who are taking her studies online. Now, if she is a pastor... She is the only billionaire pastor I know, so I know that she is not Southern Baptist. But I wanted to know something about what she was teaching, and in Lesson 29, it says the person is to read and say that God is in everything. Well, that's pantheism. And in pantheism, God is in everything, so God is not the creator, instead he is the creation. Now that is growing in our society today, more and more people believing that. And I believe that is the reason that we have the extreme positions concerning the environment and the extreme position concerning animal rights. Now I believe that we have a responsibility to take care of our environment. I believe that we have a responsibility to be kind and humane to animals, but these are extremists oftentimes. And the thing that confuses me about them is that so many are so concerned about the environment and animals, and yet they don't seem to be concerned about the life of the unborn child. In Lesson 61, it says, read and repeat, I am the light of the world. Well, the Bible says Jesus is the light of the world, though we reflect his light. It's like that Jesus is the sun. He has intrinsic light or is intrinsic light. And we are the moon. We reflect the light of Christ. Now, the Bible says that Jesus is the light of the world, and yet man has rejected Christ as light. The scripture says in John 3:19, the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Lesson number 70 says, read and repeat, my salvation comes from me. Well, I'm glad my salvation does not come from me. The Bible says that my salvation comes from Christ. There is salvation in no one else, according to Acts chapter 4, verse number 12. So, Peter is saying that there are false prophets in the church who teach false doctrines, and we deal with that by standing on the truth. And that's where we are today. Take your Bibles, turn with me. Second Peter chapter 1, verse number 12. 
Therefore, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. And I consider it right, as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we were made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. One of the things we must understand is that when one stands on truth, that one is always going to come under attack. When one stands on the truth of God's Word, there is going to be an attack. For instance, the Apostle Paul gave the truth to Festus, but then he was attacked in Acts 26:24. And while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. So when Festus heard the truth, he said, Paul, you are a madman. You have gone nuts. Much learning hath made you mad. Jesus gave the truth, but he also was accused of having demons. The Bible says the multitude answered, you have a demon. Folks, understand that if you stand on the simple truth of God's word today, that you are going to come under attack. And you are going to be called out of the mainstream and an extremist. In fact, I, I don't know how I felt about it, to be honest with you, but when Rosie O'Donnell, that great theologian, said <laughs> that a fundamentalist Christian was as dangerous as a fundamentalist Muslim. And I thought, well... You know, I guess I could be called a fundamentalist Christian in that I believe the fundamentals of the faith. But I'm not out blowing up buildings. And I am not threatening people that they convert or I'm going to kill them. So I think that's absolute nonsense. But we have to understand that if we take a position on truth, that we are going to come under attack. And yet the Bible says that nevertheless, we are to proclaim the word of God. Now look at verse number 12. Therefore, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. Now, he said, I am reminding you of these truths, but you already know them. So it's a reminder because you already know them. Adrian Rogers used to say, if it's true, it's not new, and if it's new, it's not true. Well, Simon Peter is reminding them. He said, I'm reminding you of the truth. We need to be reminded. 
Jesus reminded his followers of the truth. In John 15, he says, remember the word that I said to you. The Apostle Paul reminded his hearer of the truth that he had already shared with them. He said in Philippians 3.1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Folks, we need to be reminded of the truth. Unfortunately, many times people go to church and rather than being reminded of the truth, they receive revision of the truth. We are to be reminded of the truth. And then he says, you already know it, and you're established in the truth. Bynes says the word established means to fix, to make fast, to set. But here's what he's saying. If you are established in the truth, then the legacy you leave is a legacy of truth. Now, in verse number 15, Peter said, and I will also be diligent. That at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. So what was happening is that Peter was reminding them of the truth. Mark was the scribe who wrote it down. Peter is saying, after I'm dead and gone, you're still going to have the truth. After I am gone, then you have the legacy of the truth. Folks, it's important that we leave a legacy of truth. When Joshua was leading the uh, people of Israel across the Jordan River, they came to the other side. And so Joshua told the men, said, I want you to get some stones and stack them up. And that will be a legacy. That will be a reminder. And so the scripture says in Joshua 4, let this be a sign among you so that when your children ask later, saying, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord when it crossed the Jordan, so these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. So Joshua said, I want you to, to stack up some stones. When your children ask you, what are those stones for? Then you remind them of what happened. Remind them of the truth. Let me ask you, are you leaving a legacy of truth? After you're gone, are you leaving a legacy of truth? Well, as I was thinking about that, I thought, you know, this building is a legacy of your faith and your commitment and your sacrifice. And after we're dead and gone, this building is still going to be here. People are going to drive by and say, well, what is that building? Say, oh, that's First Baptist Church. Those people back there some years ago built that church because of their commitment to the Lord. We have people who are leaving endowments. And uh, we have a number of endowments that have been established in our church to support ministry and missions after the person is dead. And so it stands there as a legacy of their commitment, a legacy of truth. One of the great legacies that we leave is our children and our grandchildren. Are you, parents, let me ask you, are you teaching your children the truth of God's Word? Are you leaving that legacy in them? Are you nurturing that legacy of God's Word in them? See, that's so important. After I'm dead and gone, I want Stephanie and Eric to continue teaching and sharing the Word of God. And after they're gone, I want Pruitt and Hughes and my other grandchildren to continue with the Word of God. See, we need to instill in our families the Word of God so that when we are gone, that we have left a legacy of truth. And that's what Simon Peter is saying. He said, I'm reminding you of the truth, and that is our legacy. Well, what is the motivation? 
He says it's obedience to Christ. And you see, Peter's doing exactly what Jesus had told him to do. You recall that Jesus said to Peter, Peter, Satan desires to have you that he might sift you as wheat. And then Jesus said in Luke 22, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That's what Peter's doing. He is strengthening his brothers. He is reminding them of the truth. He is being obedient to the Lord. Folks, as believers, we are to be obedient to the Lord. Whatever God says, we are to be obedient to Him. Another motivation is it was right in verse number 13. And I consider it right as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. He said, it's right for me to remind you I'm doing the right thing. There are some people who are motivated out of expediency. That's the reason you see politicians oftentimes flip-flop on issues, because they take this position and then the polls show something else is popular, and so they will flop over there or flip whichever it is, but they get over on the other side. Expediency. There's some people take the positions that they hold because it's the popular position to take. Now, Peter says, I do it because it's right. Let me ask you, do you do what you do but for one reason, because it's right? See, the Scripture says in Ephesians 6, 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It, it doesn't say that you are to be obedient to your parents because uh, you want to, because uh, it's the popular thing to do, because everybody else is doing. It says you, you're to obey your parents because it's the right thing to do. Another motivation is the fact that his death was imminent in verse number 14. Knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. As also our Lord Jesus has, has made clear to me. And so Peter had come face to face with his mortality. He said, why am I doing what I'm doing? He says, because I'm going to die. I'm going to face the Lord. And the Bible tells us that we also are going to die. Psalm 90.12 says, so teach us to number our days. Proverbs 27.1, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. James 4.14, what is your life? It's a vapor that appears for a little time, and then it vanishes away. So he says, why am I doing this? Because I'm going to die. I'm going to face the Lord. Now, he presents it not as a negative thing, but as a positive thing. He mentions his earthly dwelling, which is a reference to a tent. So what he is saying is that this body in which I live is temporary. It is a tent. And no matter how long we live, this is just a temporary dwelling. So he refers to it as a, an earthly dwelling. And then in verse number 15, he mentions departure. The word departure is exodus. And it refers to the Israelites' exodus from Egypt to the promised land. And uh, William Barclay wrote, Peter sees death not as the end, but as the going out into the promised land of God. See, here's the thing, folks. When you and I die as believers... It is a departure. It is an exodus. And so we are leaving this life to go to heaven. And the Israelites left slavery to go to the promised land. So that's the way that Peter saw death. He saw it for a Christian as being a departure. It is an exodus that when the believer dies, he simply leaves this life to go to heaven that the Lord has prepared. What did he proclaim? If you proclaim the gospel, then you're going to be attacked. What did he proclaim? Look at verse number 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You know what Peter was proclaiming to them? 
the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again. Which is the blessed hope of the believer that Jesus is coming again. Now, here's the thing within the church. Is that many of them no longer believe that. Because it had been too long. In fact, if you flip over to chapter 3, look at verses 3 and 4. He says, Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and say, Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. He said, He's not coming by. Everything's just... They've been preaching that all my life. They've been saying all my life, Jesus is coming back. He's not coming back. So they, they didn't believe that. And yet, Peter's preaching to them that Jesus Christ is coming back. Well, what is the basis for his claim? What was, it's, and it's interesting to me, the basis for his claim was what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now look at verse number 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter here is referring back to the Mount of Transfiguration. And there at the Mount of Transfiguration, his deity was confirmed. You remember when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration... And Elijah and Moses both appeared, and God spoke from heaven and said, Now, this is my beloved son, this one right here. This is my beloved son, hear him. So he confirmed his deity. Not only did he confirm his deity, he confirmed his purpose. In Luke chapter 9, verses 30 and 31, And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So what they were talking to him about on the Mount of Transfiguration is his death, that Jesus had come to die on the cross, which is what he said in the Garden of Gethsemane, for this hour, for this cause came out to this hour. And so there on the Mount of Transfiguration, they confirmed his purpose and his deity and his return. William Barclay wrote, There is one particularly significant thing about the Transfiguration story. In all three Gospels, it immediately follows the prophecy of Jesus, which said that there were some, that there were some standing there who would not pass from the world until they had seen the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. That would certainly seem to indicate that the Transfiguration and the Second Coming were in some way linked Together, So there on the Mount of Transfiguration, and that was the basis for his belief. On the Mount of Transfiguration, he said that his deity was confirmed, his purpose was confirmed, and his return was confirmed. And he said, and we are eyewitnesses. The word eyewitness is used there as a technical word. There were mystery religions at that time, and they had passion plays. And in the passion plays of the mystery religions, they presented their pagan god who had lived, suffered, died, and rose from the dead. Now then, after a proper amount of preparation and instruction, the worshiper was allowed to attend and participate in the passion play. And in the passion play, then he became one with his god. Now, that is the same term that is used here, eyewitnesses. Same technical term. 
What Peter then is saying is that we have seen him. We saw his life. We saw his suffering. We saw his death. We saw his resurrection. And we are one with him. We are eyewitnesses. So there's the proclamation. Peter proclaimed the second coming of Jesus. Folks, I know it's been a long time, and I know you've heard about it all your life. But let me tell you something. When you really begin to live your life believing that Jesus is coming again, it'll make a difference in your life. The Bible says that it is our blessed hope. It is the blessed hope of the believer that Jesus is coming again. And then he appeals to the words of the prophets in verse number 19. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. He says, now the word of the prophets is even more sure. Why? Because they were based on revelation, not opinion. Now, folks, here's the thing is that false prophets always preach and teach their opinion. He says their word, the prophet's word is more sure because it's based on revelation, not opinion. Jeremiah 23, 16, thus says the Lord of hosts. Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. That's what Peter's saying. He says the word of the prophets is a more sure word because it is a word based on revelation, not opinion. It is a word that comes from the Spirit, not from rationale. He continues there in verse number 19. You do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. What Peter is saying is that Without Christ, this world is spiritually dark. Oh, and I know there's human light. I know there's human light. There have been great strides made in science and medicine and so forth, and I'm grateful for that. There have been strides made in transportation and technology and, and so forth. But without Jesus, there is spiritual darkness. You see, we live longer because of human light. But we don't live better. We travel faster, but we still don't have any place to go. So what he is saying to us is that the Word of God is the light of God in a dark world. The psalmist declared, Thy Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Ladies and gentlemen, it is the Word of God that gives us light for life. You want to know how to raise your family? Do you want to know how to have a relationship as a husband and wife? It's in the Bible. That's the reason that I read Proverbs every day. There is so much wisdom that speaks of life. If you want to know that, it's found in the Word. That's what he's saying. You want to know how to have a family? He says it's in the Word of God. You want to know about salvation? He said it's in the Word of God. Nations should look to the Word of God because it tells us what a nation is supposed to be like. And then finally there in verse number 20, he says, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will but by men, but men moved by the Holy Spirit from God. The word interpretations that is used there is only used here in the New Testament. It literally means to untie or to loosen. Here's the thing about false prophets. 
They always want to untie or loosen the Scripture from Scripture. So what happens then is that one will go to a verse of Scripture and untie it from the rest of the Word and build a false doctrine. There's enough truth in false doctrine to make it believable. If there was no truth, then you would not believe it at all. So there has to be some truth in it. So when a false prophet is teaching a false doctrine, he or she takes a verse of Scripture and then unties it or loosens it from the rest of the Word. We have to consider Scripture within its context. We are not allowed, in other words, to go to a verse of Scripture and build a doctrine on it that is contrary to Scripture. It all has to be tied together. He says, so there is, there is no Scripture of private interpretation. You do not have the right to untie or to loosen the Scripture from Scripture. It has to fit together. And then it is authentic and authoritative. Let me conclude. There are a lot of false prophets today. There's a lot of false doctrine today. I am absolutely astounded at some of the things I hear that are supposed to be Christian. So it's there. There's a lot of false doctrine. Peter is saying we need to listen to the truth, proclaim the truth, and obey the truth, and the truth will set you free. So, let me give you some truths real quickly. Truth, according to Scripture. We all are sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. You know, the... the, Essence, I believe, of the difference between someone who really believes the Bible and someone who does not is this. Those who do not believe the Bible believe that man is basically good. If you believe the Bible, it says man is basically evil. And he needs to be saved. So according to Scripture, we all are sinners. All have sinned. There's nobody here that's right apart from Jesus. That's the truth. Truth is, there's only one Savior, and that's Jesus. There is none other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes into the Father but by me. There's only one way of salvation. That's Jesus. Truth. There is a heaven. There is a hell. And you and I will spend eternity in one or the other. If we know Jesus, we spend eternity in heaven. And if not, we spend eternity in hell. That's the truth of God's Word. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the reminder of truth. And I pray, Father, that we will have conviction and courage to stand on truth, to stand for truth. And, Lord, may we leave a legacy of truth. I pray today, Father, for those who have never come to know Jesus, that they might. I pray for those who should become a part of our family. I pray that they would feel comfortable to do so. But bless the invitation as we extend it. In Jesus' name, amen. In just a moment, we're going to stand. The choir is going to sing a hymn of invitation. If you're here without Christ and you say, you know, I, I believe that. I believe that I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. And Jesus is the Savior. Then come. There will be someone here to pray with you.
If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. We'd love to have you part of our family. You stand with me, please. As they sing, you come. I'll greet you as you do.